What are the four C's of mental toughness? Hello, my friend. Welcome to Something for Everybody. The podcast helps those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashbitz, and my mission is to help you realize your potential and capabilities through conversations and deep insights so you can make your prior best your new baseline. Coach Andy Reese joins the podcast this week, and Coach Andy is a premier and highly respected mental toughness and leadership coach. And in this episode, we thoroughly break down his four C's of mental toughness, which are control, commitment, confidence, and challenge. In other news, this episode was brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So click the link in the show notes, check out all the products, see which ones might fit your needs best. Then at checkout, use code EVERYBODY for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 176 with Coach Andy. Hello, my friend. Welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashvitz. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Yeah, I'm pumped. I love your content. I love what you put out into the world. And I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. So thank you for being here. And before we sort of get into the meat and bones of this conversation, I have a very important question to ask you. And that is, how are you doing? Like, I like really, how are you doing? It's a great question, because how many times do we ask people how they're doing and we don't ever stop to listen with their responses and lean in too. So I guess if you, maybe let's frame in a way, hey, am I surviving? Am I coping or I'm thriving? I'm somewhere mm. between probably like, upper range of coping right now and thriving. So thanks for asking. Hmm. What are you, uh, what are you trying to cope with specifically? Yeah, I'm going through, uh, for me, transition from the military has been uh, very difficult. And obviously I'm dealing with entrepreneurship. I've changed jobs multiple times over the last couple of years. And so it's been a creative uh, experimental journey to figure out not only what I'm good at, but what I want to do and how to bring good into the world is that icky guy concept. So refining my icky guy about, you know, Hey, what am I passionate about? What am I good at? What I can make money at? And then really refining that has been a process and it's the veterans administration says that about 80% of veterans who leave the military, you know, and this is a higher percentage for those who spent a career in the military, like I did, they tend to change jobs at least twice in, in two years. That makes me feel a little bit better because I've, I've definitely have met that number and then some. Um, but, you know, just want to take care of my family. But I also want to, uh, you know, continue to be able to serve my community, our state of Texas and, and the country. And my mission is just to help uh, as many leaders and teams and performers as I can to forge the mental strength to win from the inside out consistently and become the best version of themselves. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, entrepreneurship is the hardest thing I've ever done. Transition has been a lot harder than I can imagine. And so that that experimentation process, you know, it takes a lot of attention and energy. And, you know, and so uh, I'm not quite where I want to be yet. I'm not satisfied. So I'm just going to keep like Sisyphus, that uh, the Greek myth. I'm going to keep pushing that rock up the hill. And once in a while, I'm going to stop and take the opportunity to reflect on the journey and smile. Because if you can imagine Sisyphus smiling, um, you know, that would be a, a really cool thing, right? Right. Well, <sighs> 
for for those that aren't in in the military and don't know that uh, that life, mm-hmm. what's so complicated and hard about leaving that community and and joining the civilian world? Yeah, I think this is really important for related to you know this idea of mental fitness, right? When we think about mental health, obviously that's the pathology prevention of pathology. We think about you know the coping side I just mentioned, which is like counseling, and that's the prevention of sliding into psychopathology, and then we think about the performance band of psychology as well too. And I, I think veterans, just like anybody, you know, goes through that whole, it, we, we operate along that psychological spectrum throughout the uh, course of our lives. For me, you know, there's a, there's a couple of reasons I think why it's, it's complicated. I think the athletes go through a very similar thing, but, or anybody, you know, who, who's, it's not just a job, it's a career, but more than a career, it's a lifestyle. So in other words, if your job or your career impacts your life, in a way to where it concerns to consume your identity and your purpose. So in other words, your values, your beliefs, your purpose become part of the core of who you are. The more that gets wrapped around itself, the, the difficult it is to be able to then, what I call like molting, you know, to where you get to shed that skin, you know, and still, still reveal the true identity of who you are, but realize that I am not my job. I am not my career. So, for me, I mean, you know, you think about it, I came into the Army at 17 years old when I went to West Point to get recruited to play football. You know, I spent my entire 20 years at war, uh, leading men and women into combat. Um, and so that was never the plan. It just was a, a really good fit for me for a lot of different reasons. You know, it felt like sports. And as you know, Aaron, I mean, you know, you were a team sport guy. You're still a team sport guy. You know, to me, you know, being in the Army was the ultimate team sport. And I woke up every day. I was around amazing people. I had amazing bosses. Um, you know, not, not everybody in the army, you know, is, is a high performer. I mean, you know, they are in the special forces community by and large, but it's a cross section of America. But I will tell you like the quality of the people that I was around was really been second to none, especially the further I get away from the military and I, I'm in the civilian world. That's not to say that people in the civilian world are dirtbags. It's just the disparity of the common purpose and mission being a part of bigger, something bigger yourself is a little bit different. So when you leave that and then it's a part of your identity, um, it becomes it becomes difficult, right? Because you're trying to not only figure out uh, where you're going to go and what you're going to do, but also you're figuring out who am I? And I think a lot of veterans, and I think I see this athletes as well too, as I mentioned, probably law enforcement, probably be a third one that's like this, is that when they don't ask the question, who am I? It makes it, you know, very difficult, you know, to make that transition, right? And I think what works sometimes in the military, like I know from my leadership style, work for in the military, you know, and what work, you know, in terms of being very aggressive, I call full contact leadership, that doesn't translate very well uh, in the civilian world. And especially doesn't translate now when I think we're working in a remote environment, people a little bit more sensitive. And so you have to make a lot of adjustments in terms of what your expectations are and how you fit in and how you can continue to serve and give back. Um, so I think that's why that's, that's where the struggle comes in from people who have who've, who've been in uniform specifically. Yeah, I think about I think about this identity piece a lot and I I came across a pretty good definition which helped me a bit was like identity is repeated beingness. That mm-hmm. makes sense to me. Okay, so who am I yeah. being? More so what values do I show up as? That's really who I am. But right. as you're saying, like for a long time I played baseball and I loved I absolutely loved being identified as a baseball player like people right. talked about me like oh that's aaron he's a baseball right. player I, I i fucking love that man yeah. but it also foreclosed me into being a specific thing like i wasn't anything right. else and yeah. then 
when that career ended, I transitioned into being a wrestler and I go, oh, that's the pro wrestler. He runs around in his underwear. Great. That's a fantastic, that's Jackson Stone. Right. Yeah. And then when both of those things come to an end, yeah. it's like, like I, then I, then I don't know. The only time you, you, I think yeah. it becomes a real issue is, is like when you're saying is when you're transitioning out into something and you have that sort of that time to actually sit down and reflect like, okay, like now, like I'm not a baseball player anymore. I yeah. may not play baseball at a high level. I don't right. wrestle anymore. I'm right. not in the military. Right. Do I actually have any value as a human being? That's like, that's where the thoughts go. Like, am I enough? Yeah. Am I worthy to do anything? Right. And for me, at least that's where the sort of the struggle of yeah. uh, mental health came in. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I had a situation in my life um, that sort of forced me to figure it out or I wasn't right. going to make it to the next day. Um, right. And um, with athletes and with those in the military or those anything that that sort of have to become obsessed at something to reach an yeah. elite level, as you obviously know, because that's the people you work with on a day to day basis. Right. There's there's a way to do it, I feel like, in a yeah. healthy manner where you can have this obsession, but also not foreclose your identity on this thing. You can be expansive, yeah. but also be sort of narrow minded in the mission, yeah. I, I believe. Yeah, that's a great it's a really great point, Aaron, too, because I it's something I'm really interested in right now too and working with you know veterans and athletes who are going through a transition and some nonprofits um participated in some studies that you know look at the research and the connection between those two because veterans have a ton of resources athletes don't and a lot of people are thinking oh well athletes they're millionaires and well guess what not not all athletes are millionaires i mean i, I like that that dichotomy of what you're talking about is is really interesting in in baseball players specifically i saw that too a little bit different than football players who are in the nfl because you know they they, they make a, there's no minor league system for the nfl well i guess the xfl and usfl is kind of becoming a minor league system so yeah. that's gonna be interesting but let's talk about minor league baseball since you were a baseball player you could appreciate that you're laser focused on making it to the league right you know you want to live your big league dreams and i saw that play out and you know sometimes if you're coming in and you're undrafted you're a free agent maybe you're coming from a latin american country where you got your whole family that's relying on you to make it to the big leagues it puts a lot of pressure on them and so they're just focused on making it to the big leagues but the odds are firmly stacked against them you know 90 you know you know 10 percent of players make it to you know make it to the big league like it's actually less than that you know and so and then you know less than one percent of all players who make it have, you know, stay long enough, you know, to, they have a cup of coffee, as they say, and then they end up coming back down to the minor league system. They spend the majority of their time there. Well, you get, you know, it takes such a long time to move through that farm system and that pipeline is that, you know, I find a lot of athletes, Hey, they're 25, 30 years old. There's a great story about a player who's like 32 years old, which, you know, is over the hill for professional athletes. Finally <laughs> got it, you know, finally got a taste of the big leagues, got called up. Right. Well, what happens if, you know, what's what's grit's glass ceiling is what I call it, right? So if grit, according to Angela Duckworth, is the passion and perseverance over time and you're laser focused on accomplishing your goal, at what point in time do you need to cut your losses and develop, you know, a, an alternate plan, right? And so for me professionally, you know, uh, I always, you know, to fall back on a military term, I always want to have a pace plan, <laughs> you know, so I can always take care of my family. I have a primary means you know, I have an alternate, I have a contingency and I have an emergency, right? Not every, you don't have to always have a pace plan professionally, but what I taught baseball players was, you know, Hey, look, if you're in double A and you're three, four years in, what's your, what's your backup plan? What's your alternate plan? Right. You know, so, and part of that discussion was looking at the, I know we're going to talk about the four C model, 
was really building their character and their identity, you know, which really, like going back again, starts with, hey, your values. What are the principles that really matter to you, right? What are the three to five things? And that becomes really the framework for how you see yourself and how you see others, which is your belief system. Because then that belief system is now is really gets into the perception and perspective. Perception is the lens in which I see myself and others in situations. Perspective is the understanding and interpretation about what happens to me and, and as I take action and agency and control over my destiny, right? And then the last piece then is the, my purpose. Is that's my mission, right? So what is my mission in absence of baseball, right? And I think when you start to really develop that character, it becomes the foundation, the core of who you are. And that it doesn't make it easier, but it increases the probability that transition is going to move towards something to where you can continue to be able to learn and grow regardless of whether or not you find you're the right fit, you know, within or outside of baseball. But it just opens up your aperture to possibilities, right? Because I think just I think it's a little bit dangerous to be myopic and to have blinders on in any profession, because the reality is, I think, you know, it's just, we're all expendable, right? In certain cases, we, it's, but again, another, another thing that's difficult, people are our most important resource in everything that we do, you know, organizationally on a team, right? But that's at the same time, you know, hey, we can leave and we got to, and we, somebody is going to replace us, right? Whether we get mm -hmm. fired, whether we get injured, whether, you know, we quit, right? It's, the, it's always a next person up. And so that's another interesting thing as well, too, is that, how do I continue to invest in my people, but knowing that it's always going to be the next person up, right? So you are not the end all be all, right? You know, and, you know, it sounds selfish and self-centered, but you, you have to lead yourself first. You got to take care of yourself first, you know, but at the same time, be focused on, you know, the people to your left and right and the mission, you know, uh, but those sometimes can be at odds with each other, right? Yeah, I can't. And I, and I, I feel like back to like maybe a couple minutes earlier when you're talking about transitioning, right? It's like, I think also athletes have a tough time um, extracting the skills that they've learned as an athlete into a different domain. Like right. I, I had a hard time figuring out what baseball taught me after I was done playing baseball because I was so bitter and resentful that baseball ended. I had no idea that it taught me resiliency and grit and teamwork right. and compassion yeah. and like oh yeah. all of these things that i need to do this podcast like i didn't get good at baseball it took me 15 years okay so why am i expecting my podcast or me to be good at podcasting in one year i should That's expect right. that in 10 years or 15 yeah. and i look at guys like rich roll who are one of the best podcasters in the world he's doing it 10 years and he's yeah. like i can still get better and so i think athletes yeah. have a hard right. time with that extra extracting those skills but then if they speak to someone about it, they're like, dude, no, you, you, you have these skills. Now yeah. you just have to like have a little bit of time to figure out where you might want to implement those skills next. Are you into business, into sales, right. into real estate, into yeah. coaching potentially? And yeah. then you use those same exact skills and now you, right. you're, you're able to be this full human being who's not just this one thing, but yeah. use all of the skills you learned from this amazing thing that you had, which is being yeah. able to play sports at a high level or any level or any time playing sports mm -hmm. is amazing. And then yeah. like, oh, now I can do it with coaching or being a dad or being a kindergarten teacher or whatever the case is, right? And I think that's yeah. that's also important um, just to be yeah. able to sit and reflect on that. That's a great point, Aaron, because, you know, and that's why I'm so passionate about these, uh, you know, so-called soft skills. And I, I don't call them soft skills, I call them soft skills because special operations forces use them. And I always tell them, hey, there's nothing soft about some of the baddest ass people on the planet, you know, uh, that I got a chance to serve and, and be able to work with, right? There's just skills. 
And so we tend to focus on hard skills because what gets measured gets managed. So think about like your your craft or even on the physical side, we can, you know, we understand that from maybe a nutrition and a recovery and, a, and an exercise standpoint, but those intangible attributes that make us who we are, you know, uh, whether or not we're members of a team, we're teammates or leaders, right? There's a way that those are skills, those are learned behaviors that we can actually develop. And I think that's really important for the performance of transition. And that psychology of transition is often overlooked and forgotten, right? Because like I said, like there's very few things that you're going to learn in sport, maybe even in the military. Like I was a field artillery officer. I blew stuff up for a living. You know, my job is to be able to, you know, call in air, airplanes and artillery and mortars and to, to put warheads on foreheads and jump out of airplanes. That, that does not necessarily translate to the civilian world. But the things that I learned, you know, in terms of, you know, the mental skills, the emotional skills, the social skills, those soft skills or soft skills are really what carry the day. And they don't, you know, and I think when that starts to turn on the light bulbs for a lot of athletes, right? Because when you learn how to be confident despite setbacks, when you learn how to concentrate and miss distractions, you learn how to be composed under extreme circumstances, you learn about motivation and discipline towards accomplishing your goals, you learn how to look at challenges and opportunities to be able to learn and grow, like all those things that you, you can bring to bear, they, they translate from the ball field to the boardroom and to the battlefield, but also into life. Yeah. Um, there's something you said at the very beginning that, that caught my attention uh, that said being an entrepreneur is the hardest thing you've ever done. And that's surprising considering you went to West Point, you've been to the military, you went to war, uh, you're a dad, right? That's also a really hard thing. Um, why why entrepreneurship uh, is, is the hardest thing you've ever done? Well, one, it's, you know, by nature, it's just difficult. I mean, the majority, it's like baseball, right? You know, baseball is a game that's built on failure. And, you know, and it takes a lot of resilience and grit and persistence to be able to, to, to break through. And so I think entrepreneurship is in business is uh, a venture that's built on failures. Well, to the majority of businesses that start and, and fail, you hit on something that I think really was a light bulb moment for me, Aaron, just now too, is that the, is it has to do with your expectations about what you can do and not do and how long it takes to, to be, to be good or be competent, let alone be very good, great and elite. Right. You know, you just talking about the rich role example, but, talk about from our athletic perspectives about how long it took us you know i mean the whole uh, andres erickson thing was taken way out of context right that in malcolm gladwell's book the outliers right it's not not everything takes ten thousand hours or 10 years right but it does it definitely takes a lot of practice to become consciously competent let alone unconsciously competent at any set of skills and i think for me although i you know uh, I think a lot of things that from the military set me up well to be an entrepreneur. You know, one of, my, one of them is my grit, my determination too. But there's so many things that go into building a business, right? In terms of all the fundamentals, right? Um, and it's like, for me, it's like, okay, I've got, I, I'm a really good speaker, right? I've honed that craft, right? You know, uh, I'm not great yet by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a pretty good coach. Definitely not great. Um, I'm really good at facilitating, doing workshops. I'm starting to learn about with my business partner, how to develop really great educational content. But how do I package that together into a business and then market it, for example, and sell it and get it out in the world? Because you could have, you could be the greatest things in the sliced bread, but if you don't have the vehicle to be able to get it out in the world, then one, you're not gonna add value, B, you're not gonna make money, right? And so that's that's kind of where I'm at. I've only been a year doing this. And you know, I'll, I'll, you know, another thing too, Uncle Sam just took a giant bite out of my 
behind, which is another, you know, kind of punch to the gut. You know, you're not making a lot of money. I, I'm lucky I'm retired. I can take care of my family just by waking up in the morning um, because of my 20 years of service. Right. But I think the reality is, is that, you know, my expectations, you know, don't match the reality of what it takes to to be successful in this venture. Right. Because I think and I think we also don't have patience. We have this cool, it's called a drive through mindset as Americans. Like we believe in, in hard work. We're not willing. We don't have the staying power, when, especially when things get tough you know, um, to, to be able to see things through. Right. And so we want that instant gratification. And I think coming from a high performance arena, whether it's in the military or in sports, our expectations, like, you know, are really interesting. And I, an expectation is, you know, a belief that something's going to happen based on your relative experience or credible information. And so you can have all the credible information in the world, but if you don't have the relative experience, you don't have an expectation, you have an anticipation. And if you have, you know, if you have a lower number on those two variables, it becomes an assumption or hope. Now, hope in itself is a is a great thing, right? It's a it's a very powerful emotional thing that can inspire us. But it doesn't. When things get hard, we get punched in the face. Hope isn't a method. It isn't a strategy, right? And sometimes we have to make decisions off of assumptions based on very little information. But again, you know, we don't want to do that all the time. So I'm trying to move from, you know, hope and assumptions that I could be a successful entrepreneur, you know, and, and really make my icky guy work. And I'm also, but I try to move it more to anticipations and expectations. And I think you're right. You know, my expectations about what it takes and how long it takes to become an entrepreneur has fundamentally shifted, especially in this year, you know, and if you start to look at the entire mountain, when you're at the bottom of the mountain, it can get really, it can be really daunting. Right. So what I've done is I shifted my expectations, my perception to like, Hey, I'm just going to get it to this next ridge line. And when I get to that next ridge line, I'm going to take a knee, break out the map again, get, you know, refuel, recover. I'm going to move it to the next ridge line, right? That's how doing high and hard things works. Goal, the science of goal pursuit really supports that idea is that I need to segment up this idea of climbing this mountain of entrepreneurship by really influencing my expectations and the expectations of others that I work with. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I think about another thing that that creates a challenge internally with us is that social media, right? Because you see, at least for me, right? I see someone on social media who posts one podcast or one video and they've blown up and the whole thing is viral and they have millions yeah. of followers. Yeah. And then for like a second, it makes me a little upset. I feel some sort of emotion about it. Right. And then I think to myself, okay, if I if my very first podcast that I put out three, four years ago went viral, would I have had sustaining power? I'd be like, no, that shit was terrible. I couldn't ask questions. I stumbled over my words. I didn't even have a camera yeah. or a microphone. It was just my buddy holding the thing. Yeah. So why would I, and I would have I would have gotten all this attention and then it would have crumbled away. And so yeah. I think there's there's a social media aspect to it, but there's also a right timing in place. Like I want to be. I'll never be ready per se for, let's say, if my podcast gets a million downloads a month, like some of the right. great ones. Right. But I can be as best prepared to know that I'm firm in my stance. I have some stuff figured out. I can always improve. But yeah. um, if, I, if, I, if I've built up that credibility and that consistency in myself, then I know when more people start to listen or follow or engage or buy or I have to coach or bigger speaking engagements or whatever it is, you're in both our cases. Then yeah. I know I'm actually I'm actually grounded in that position. I actually yeah. can 
let go of some of the imposter syndrome a little bit and know, okay, yes, I've, I've worked really hard to be here. Of course, yeah. there's another level, there's another step. But right. now, like this attention, I'm, I'm worthy of this attention. Um, you know, I, th I think that's also another thing when it comes to being an entrepreneur. At least I've, I've felt that over the last couple of years. Yeah, and I think what you're highlighting there, Aaron, is what I call neutral thinking. And this comes from the late, great Trevor Moed. Have you, you ever heard of neutral thinking? You've ever getting, you read yes. Getting Neutral? Yeah, I mean, think of it like a stoplight. And I think you what you know you have on the green light, you know, if we're, we're driving, that's that's green lights go. That's positive thinking, right? That's uh, that helps to give us energy, optimism, and enthusiasm. Um, you know, helps keep us gives us that that optimism that we're looking for. Uh, but the negative thinking we know is undefeated, right? That's the that's the red light thinking that causes us to stop, grinds to a halt. But you know, we have built in negative thinking because it was designed to be able to protect us. It's part of our risk orientation. It's like a built-in governor that we have to keep us, you know, or those lane assists that keep us from swerving to the left and the right on a modern day car, right? And but then there's this idea of neutral thinking, which often isn't talked about. And I think that uh, Trevor Moa was onto something and it's really reinforced by Dr. Stephen Hayes from uh, University of Nevada, who's the founder and did a lot of research on acceptance and commitment training or acceptance and commitment therapy act. So this idea of neutral thinking is this idea, okay, so I see, let's use the social media effect as an entrepreneur or a podcaster, right? Because I do the same thing. I'm on LinkedIn, you know, and I didn't used to be on social media. I went from being passive to active and started getting stuff out in the world and experimenting. And now I'm at the point where I'm almost trying to post every single day, right? And, it, and part of the reason why I did that, I was like, hey, man, I'm trying to keep up or, you know, and so I'm looking at other people who are like, on, let's say LinkedIn, they're LinkedIn top voices like my buddy, John McCaskill. And I could easily look at my buddy, John McCaskill and be like, Man, this guy is killing it. And he's got it all figured out. But I talked to John, and he'll openly admit, man, that guy, he doesn't have it all figured out either. You know, you look at guys like, you know, that you're talked about that started doing things like, you know, that, that you look up to, like Michael Gervais, um, for example, too. Like, hey, Mike's been doing this for a long time, man. And he just, he wasn't an overnight success. But when we look at them from the surface, we think that then we start to do get in that comparison trap. And that comparison trap leads us into that red light thinking, that negative thinking because that's the FOMO or the fear of missing out or the fear of failure or that I'm not good enough, right? That really, you know, creates that cortisol neurochemical drip into our system that causes that stress response, right? Now, if I can move in, it's really unrealistic, you know, for you to move from red light thinking to green light thinking right away, because what do you have to pass through? You have to pass through neutral thinking, right? So I think when you get in those situations where I start to feel like I'm not good enough and I'm not where I need to be. I feel inadequate. Uh, you know, I'm not doing enough, you know, I'm not getting the results. Neutral thinking allows us to be able to shift back more onto the process, right? That allows us to be able to, to then pause, to look at things objectively as possible, to put things in perspective and then be able to then, you know, detach from maybe that negative thinking and those negative emotions that are related to that and then shift to more, you know, more helpful thinking, right? So a great, my, my, to me, the ultimate neutral thought is, you know, you know, comes from a couple of different people. Nelson Mandela is one of them. You know, he has a great quote that I, I, I've adopted for myself. It's I either win or I learn, I never lose. Can you imagine going through life doing what he did where he spent, you know, over a decade in prison? Um, you know, he did some, some, you know, some things that he regretted, you know, earlier as a young man, but learn from that experience where later they became the president of South Africa, where they helped end apartheid, um, you know. Uh, and so you think about that from a perspective, like either when I learn, I never lose, right? You know, maybe that's a positive statement. Maybe that's more of a neutral statement. 
you know, but the idea of accepting things for what they are and then detaching from that and taking that next best step is going to allow you to be able to move from, you know, red pass through the yellow to where maybe I'm slowing down or maybe I can speed up and accelerate and we're getting that positive thinking, which is focusing on the attitudes and behaviors that are going to help you move your business, move your podcast, you know, move your life in the next, uh, in the direction that it needs to go. Yeah. I love, I love the idea of, uh, of neutral thinking. Um, when I, when I was studying more of Michael Gervais stuff, he had it as very similar, like positive mind, negative mind, and no mind. No mind yeah. is that you're just, you're accepting things as they come. And the, and as you're saying, the only way to get into positive mind, which positive mind will then lead you into the flow state is through this sort of no mind. You can't, like you said, can't go from negative to positive to like, just like you have to pass through something and then positive mind leads you into that, into the zone, into the flow state, which is like, you know, the magical where the baseball looks like a beach ball or, you know, all that good stuff. But, um, yeah, so that's you know, awesome. Yeah. And I, I, I like to say, you know, I'm, um, you know, dug in a lot of the, the research. One of my, uh, my mentors, uh, is Dr. Ken Revisa, and he used to say that that uh, the zone is overrated. And that's not to mean that it's not important, but it, it's so fleeting, it happens to you. It's like we want to try to, how can we replicate as many elements of the zone or flow state that we can, right? And to me, you know, when I teach mental toughness, people, the, the best, the most elite people in the world are not the ones who show up and are, you know, all of a sudden they flip a switch and they're in, in the flow or in the zone, right? But it's when they have, you know, they don't always, they realize they'd always have their A game, but when they have their C game, they can get a C plus, right? To me, that's mm -hmm. about optimal performance and optimal performance is different than peak or high performance. It's more about, hey, how can I muster all the available resources I have at that given time based on what I can control in that moment? And then how do I get the most out of them to perform at the upper range of my potential consistently, regardless of what the outcomes are, right? You know, that's what optimal performance is, is, is about, you know, and it sometimes flows in the, it flies in the face of what people know as the zone. And I, I tend to not even talk about it, you know, because the reality is, is that it goes back to expectations. If I expect that I'm in the zone and I perform anything less than my A game, now I start to, that creeps in that negative thinking. My expectations don't match the reality of what it takes to be, you know, competent. Hmm. Yeah. I, um, I try to tell my boys that, I don't, I don't care about your best games and I don't care about the worst games. I care about who you are in the middle because that's the majority of your, as you as a baseball player. Yes, right. you're going to have the game where you go 0 for 4. Yes, you're going to have with four strikeouts. Yes, you're going to have the game with four home runs or four doubles. Those are rare. Who are you in the middle? Like that's, that's, right. that's what every coach is looking at. Like how do you show up day to day regardless yeah. of how you feel? You're, you have these, these skills or these set of protocols or these practices that help you show up on the field regardless yeah. of if you went over four or four for four. And right. I mean, that's exactly what you're alluding to. And baseball players with 162 game season will yeah. not show up to the baseball field every day. Like, Oh yeah, it's a great day. My body feels great. Everything's perfect. Right. Um, I had a great conversation with my wife. My kids didn't stay up late. Travel was super easy. Like not a fucking chance, man. Yeah. And it's the same thing with life. It's a, not every day you're going to wake up sunshines and rainbows, but some days you're going to get great sleep. You're going to feel awesome. And that performance right. is going to reflect that. But how yeah. do you still make it to the gym? Even though you, you just don't really feel like it. How do you still get your work done or pick your kids up from school or make that lunch or do yeah. the extra rep? You know, all of that stuff. That's yeah. the, that's who you are as a person. That's what defines you. That's what will, people will talk about when mm -hmm. they speak about you at your funeral. Like this guy, 
he showed the fuck up. He tried. And yep. I always admire that about that person or what, or me or yeah. myself, or, or, or that's the nugget. That's a great point, man. And I think there's uh, a recent events, you know, that talk about the ultimate, ultimate neutral thinker who's authentic to who he is as a superstar, Nikola Jokic, right. Mm. You know, I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but uh, you know, I tend to only watch the NBA in the playoffs. Right. You know, so and I only watch college basketball in the, in the March madness because that's when it gets really good. And that's when the really the compelling stories come out. And so, uh, and I think it's also when they start to actually really try hard, but uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what an amazing story, right? I mean, this guy, you know, undrafted out of Serbia, you know, doesn't, he's, a, you know, he's a big dude, incredible basketball player, master of his crap, but he's an even better human being and, and teammate, right? You know, in terms of what they talked to him about, doesn't get too high, too, too low. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dying watching these. He wins the NBA championship and I'm seeing the interviews and he's like, hey, we just got the job. You know, most of the people, you know, it's like the Kevin Garnett where it's all emotional and like anything is possible and I'm going to Disneyland and whatever. And he's like, he's like, yep, we got the job done. Now it's time for me to go home. Right. right. And they're like, hey, what did you do with the MVP trophy? And he's like, I don't know. I gave it to the equipment guy and I haven't seen it <laughs> since. And they're like, hey, you Instagram for the parade. He's like, when is it? And the presser. And they're like, you know, oh, it's coming. He's like, and he's kind of pissed. He's like, man, I need to get home and see my horses and my family back in Serbia. Like y'all are, you know. Y'all are kind of rating him my parade, right? I mean, but like the guy's the same dude, you know, whether he's the MVP of the finals of, you know, uh, of, of the league, whether he gets a triple double, you know, whether they lose or whether they not, he's the same guy, right? You know, and so to me, that's, you know, it probably starts with how he thinks, you know, mm -hmm. and how he shows up for other people with the ultimate purpose of, of just winning. You know, it's not about him. And I think he's a, you know, if you're an athlete out there, you're a parent, you're a coach, you know, you're a leader, take a, take a harder look at Nikola Jokic, man. Cause I think he's a really a great case study on an optimal performer and a neutral thinker. Absolutely. And I'm sure he, uh, this was a perfect segue, by the way, is my podcasting skills at work here. I'm sure he embodies at least one of the, or maybe all four of your four C's of mental toughness. So, <laughs> Nice segue, man. I like that. Good, good bridge. Good bridge what we want to talk about. Yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, I, I want to, I want to dive into each of these. Um, yeah. They're all extremely important. Obviously they're sort of the bedrock of, of how you coach. I imagine that's why they're your, yeah. your four C's. Um, so let's start with one. Um, what does mental toughness actually mean? Because yeah. I think that gets thrown around a lot. And then we'll we'll start with um, control first. Yeah. So I, you know, I'll give you the dictionary definition of mental toughness. So it's the, and I'll tell you, you know, and this goes back to the optimal performance thing of what it's all about. So mental toughness is the ability and willingness to be able to use a specific set of mental and emotional skills to be able to execute tasks or perform at the upper range of your potential consistently regardless of circumstances and outcomes that's like that's like that's the that's the no kidding literature definition that comes from dr jim lair my mentor dr jack grapple um it comes from you know uh, people who studied this some of the authors like dr john perry peter clough and my partners in aqr international over in england so and there's a lot of research that goes behind this too what i define mental toughness is it comes closer to the jim lair definition was Hey, getting the most out of what you have to be at your best when it matters the most. It's very simple. I'm going to say it again. Mental toughness is getting the most out of what you have to be at your best when it matters most. And ultimately, it's a combination of two things. It's resilience and performance. It's playing your ability to play psychological defense, which is to bounce back after adversity. 
And it's also to be able to then execute tasks and do your job, which is about optimal performance. So if you can do those two things, you can play psychological offense and defense, you know, you can be really competent. You can, and you're more likely to be, you know, to get the most out of what you have and influence others towards, towards common goals. Um, I think the four C's uh, is a great model one because it's very simple. Um, it's easy to remember, you know, like as we talked about in the pre-show, I'm really passionate about working with a lot of youth athletes, especially teenagers, coaches, and parents. So having a model, it's very easy to understand and it's a low barrier of entry to be able to then, you know, wrap their head around it. That's great, you know, and it's also, it's a visual conceptual model that they can then turn into skills, tactics, and processes. They can go action right away. Um, and so, you know, the, it'll be in the show notes, but it looks like a pizza pie, the 4C model too. And you divide that pizza up into quarters, you get the 4Cs. Um, and so it's, uh, what's interesting about the 4C model also is it's both an inside out and an outside in process. So a lot of people who are familiar or not familiar with, you know, mental skills training from sport and performance psychology or positive psychology, you know, a lot of the criticism comes, it's about the individual. It's not about the collective. Um, but what I like about this model is that it's, it shows that, Hey, developing your mental game is both an inside out and an outside in process. Right. And that's why I think it's so closely related to the intangible attributes and characteristics of great leaders, which is obviously something I'm passionate about as well. Um, so that's kind of the big picture of the four C's and then, you know, uh, you know, where, where do you want to jump in and, you know, from, from there, you want to start breaking it down one at a time. Yeah, I'd love to start breaking it down one at a time. I think uh, starting with control uh, yeah. is a really big one. Yeah, for sure. Control is probably the most robust um, of the four C's because there's just a lot of tools that are, are in it. And, I, you know, as you're looking at the model, what you think, again, going back to the pizza metaphor, right, you think about, hey, you got the core elements, the four C's, and you got the ingredients that go in it that you can't necessarily see the ingredients are like the skills and the process and the tactics that go into it. So I'm going to, I'm going to break that down. So control is really broken up into two, two key sub factors. One is life control. Two is an emotional control. So life control is all about this idea. Hey, do I, you know, do I believe that I'm the captain of my fate and what I, uh, do I believe I control what happens to me will lead to positive outcomes and my goals over time. Right. And this idea of agency, and it's really the spectrum of what's called external versus internal locus of control, which you're aware of, Aaron. You know, so people who have a high external locus of control believe that other things like fate, luck, circumstances, others, the factors outside of ourselves probably more determine what happens to us than internal factors. So on the other end of that spectrum is that people who have a high internal locus of control tend to believe that, you know, they are their, their willpower that their attitudes and behaviors, you know, can really uh, influence what happens to them and, and also influences others. What we want, ideally want to have is somebody to be able to be in the middle, depending on what the situation. So you don't want to be really, when it comes to life control, you don't want to be really high on external locus of control. You don't want to be really low uh, or really, really high on internal locus of control. You want to be somewhere in the middle, depending on the circumstances, right? And we really learned that it came, this idea of controlling the controllables really came to the forefront um, you know, during the pandemic. And a lot of this has to do with philosophy. Mental toughness comes from the Stoic philosophy. And so they're, they're really the original gangsters of mental toughness. So this stuff is, is 2000 years old. Then emotion control gets really interesting uh, too, because there's a lot that goes into that as well. And so this is the difference between experiencing emotions and being emotional. As human beings, we experience a lot of emotions and that's a good thing. You know, we're emotional creatures, but when our emotions start to control our attitudes and our behaviors, 
you probably are familiar with this idea of amygdala hijacking. Our amygdala is the part of the brain that controls a lot. That's our emotional center of our brain. When that controls our more logical prefrontal cortex or hijacks it, you know, bad things tend to happen, right? We're more irrational, illogical. We tend to say and do things that we don't normally do that are productive and effective, right? So understanding your emotions and naming it to taming them and understanding how they they relate in this cycle of the mind-body connection between how you think, how you feel, what you do, and, uh, and, and how that affects how you perform is really, really important. So that's emotional control. But then another piece of control too is controlling your attention. So that's, you know, being able to take my sensory awareness, you know, and treating it like a weapon system, you know, think like a bow and arrow to where, you know, to my brain or is the bow and the arrow is my attention to where, you know, my attention, you know, my sensory awareness, you know, goes to a target that's inside or outside of myself, then I can shift it on demand. And then when I get an ability to get distracted, you know, I put it back on target. It's this idea about having present moment focus. So you hear a lot about mindfulness, but mindfulness is really about present moment focus because human beings are designed, you know, the way that our brains and bodies are designed is to be in the here and the now, right? We're not, we, although we can reflect on the past and project into the future through planning, we're designed to perform in the moment. So that's, that, that's where attention control, it also debunks the idea of multitasking and the idea about uh, monotasking or, and then being able to shift on demand. Um, and then the two other pieces that I won't belabor this too much you know, is about energy management, you know, so there's mental, emotional, social, physical, spiritual elements of energy, which is your capacity to do work. I'm not talking about chakras or auras or California hot tub stuff. You know, I'm talking about, you know, the, the, uh, the, the physics, you know, and the, your biology, right. And the neurochemical aspect of energy, and you only have so much of it, like your battery, you know, so when you're, you know, so you think about your cell phone battery, we're always locked into where our battery percentage is, but we oftentimes don't understand where our energy levels are, you know, and how to recharge. So it's about balancing work and recovering, understanding our relationship with stress, how to be able to manage that as well too, especially under, you know, pressure situations. And then finally imagery control, which is a lot of people are familiar with this idea of visualization, but imagery is this idea is that how do we simulate something to where it's so real and vivid in our minds that it almost becomes real to where we can change the structure of our brain you know, towards gaining competence, reflecting on a performance or being able to then, um, you know, see a future that we want to happen, you know, and it, we're doing something in our mind to get good mental reps to be able to make that happen. Um, so that that's control is very robust, right? There's a lot of stuff that goes into that, but that's that's your overview of control on the 4C model. Yeah, the the one that sticks out to me the most or that's most relevant to me at this moment is the sense of emotional control. Yeah. Um because as the as the coach of a 14-year-old team, um they're they're still not sure what to do with some of these emotions because as you know on the baseball field, frustration is a very common occurrence. Frustration yeah. based on not getting a hit, making an error, uh walking a guy the umpire, that's a large sense of frustration. Um, so how do we feel those emotions? Because I, I don't want you to suppress them, right? Um, but how do you then channel them in, in the right direction without throwing your helmet, you know, screaming at the umpire, throwing your yeah. hands up in the air, um, yeah. allowing it to to affect you? And, and then your reaction bleeds into the rest of your team. Now they're like, oh, is is Jim like, is he all right? Like, I, I don't know if I want the ball hit to him. Should he hit any like, so then it just turns into sort of more 
um, yep. without really anyone communicating that to one another. And so yep. trying to get um, that emotional control and sort of how you react to certain adverse situations, yep. um, having a protocol for that, I think, I think is really important. Yeah, let's let's pull on the thread. And I'd like to offer up, you know, because I'm all about actionable information, right? You know, the one of the, one of the strategies that I te teach is this is called the pogo method, right? And, you know, so you think about a pogo stick, it's all about you can, you know, unlike, you know, you know, pogo stick, like, hey, once you once you bounce on it, and it compresses, it, it gets higher and higher, right? So it's a little bit different than you know, it's a resilience strategy and grit strategy that allows you to not just bounce back, to stasis, you know, but to be able to then ex hit that accelerator button, like we were talking about earlier, using the stoplight method. So POGO stands for pause, uh, observe, um, getting to neutral and onward, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then sometimes when you're in the moment, you don't always have time to be able to do that, but you can, you can actually, using the baseball example, so let's say you make an error, you know, or you strike out, you know, or, um, you know, just something bad happens, right? You blow a big lead, right? Someone hits a home run off you, whatever. You know, what's great about baseball is that there's these moments of space between plays, right? Upwards, you have upwards to 15 seconds between pitches as a great example, right, too. So in that space, what are you doing to be able to flush what happened or filter out what happened to you to be able to get in the moment and to be able to take the next best step? So Pogo is a way of being able to do that. So the first thing we want to do, let's say we, you know, when something bad happens to us, right? You know, it's either in our control or outside of our control. Hey, let's say I make an error, I'm in the field or I'm placed second base. That was my position, right? So if I just made an error in second base and I the first thing I do is I get pissed. My body language is and I'm mad, right? And that's okay. That's okay. It's natural to do that. You want to pro process that. But as soon as you start to feel that physiology and, and feel that body language, those indicators that I'm in, I'm going to red light thinking. I want to pause, right? And just pausing for a second and then breathing, you know, allowing you to breathe in now allows you to be able to then create space and then regain control of my emotions before my emotions control, control me. So then the next thing I want to do is then I want to observe, right? You know, and I want to really dial in to not only observing the situation and what's required of me, you know, and then I also want to observe what's going on inside of me, you know, and that takes like a millisecond to be able to do that. Maybe a quick body scan where I imagine kind of this like this MRI machine or this beam of light going down from my head, down to my feet, and then back up, and I'm doing my breathing, okay? But I'm still in position. I'm ready for the next pitch, right? I'm ready to go. Then I want to get to neutral, right? Okay, and now what am I saying to myself? Now I'm moving to yellow light thinking in terms of what do I say to myself in a moment to shift to more neutral, right? And maybe be here or maybe more positive. Okay, okay, that just happened, okay? That just happened, no, no problem. One time, one thing, okay? Next pitch next pitch. Those are neutral statements that we could say to ourselves to now shift our thinking to now I can get getting to neutral the G. Now I can move onward to the next best step towards a small victory, which is now okay, and I'm now I'm ready. I'm ready for the next play. I'm here in the present moment. I'm not in the past. I'm not in the future. I'm here. And I'm now in a better position to be able to make the next play, right? You know, and so those pogo is a very simple way that can, especially when you make mistakes and when you lose, start to lose control, you know, you can't flip a switch in the middle of the game and expect Pogo to work. That's why you got to implement Pogo into, and this is what's great about the mental game is you can incorporate that in your daily life. You know, you can incorporate that at home. You can incorporate that in practice. And the more reps you get at that, the more competent you can become at it. So eventually you're consciously competent, meaning that I'm aware that of this process and I can activate it. 
But eventually over time, what's great is that he can become unconsciously competent at it to where now it's just a part of who I am because I've done it so much. Now it's now it's a part of a natural part of my response system where I don't have to think about it. It's just my natural way of responding to the situations, right? It's easier said than done. That's why it takes deliberate and intentional practice. So, so uh, Pogo is a practical way you can put a, for your listeners to be able to put some uh, resilience into action. Fantastic. Love that insight. Um, next one, commitment. Yeah, commitment. So commitment is really all about stick to itness. Okay. And so there's two mm. sub factors for this. One is about achieving results, which is, you know, about, uh, you know, getting stuff done. Uh, it's about winning. I mean, let's face it, winning matters, right? You know, and so, and life's not fair. Not everybody gets a trophy, you know, but ultimately, you know, the process and the results matter. So whereas goal orientation is more about the process, um, you know, which is about, hey, how do I develop a roadmap for my success? Understand where I'm at now based on where I've been. What are the, what are the waypoints or next steps to be able to take steps towards my goal? How do I get back on track? So that's really about the art and science of goal pursuit. Um, and then, you know, getting stuff done then is about this idea of, of uh, commitment and discipline. I'm sorry, motivation and discipline. This is where I really talk into this idea about, you know, uh, for your listeners that are out there, you know, there are people, James Clear and Jocko, who seem to think that uh, discipline and motivation are sometimes they're, they're not related or they're, it's one versus the other. That couldn't be any further from the truth because the science actually shows that it's, uh, they, they work better together to be successful, mm. to achieve results and, and accomplish your goals. And to grow, it actually requires commitment, which is about, uh, sorry, it requires motivation, especially the internal motivation, which requires, you know, think about self-determination theory, which is about competence. Am I good at it? Autonomy. Do I have the resources to do it on my own with the team? And then relatedness. Is it related to, you know, uh, other people in this situation? So that internal motivation that becomes the, the fuel that drives my engine. And so when I have that, that's really important, right? But then at the end of the day, I'm not always going to feel, going back to the emotional control piece, I'm not always going to feel good. I'm not always going to be my best. I don't feel like working out, right? You know, I didn't sleep very well. I'm tired at the end of the day. You know, I don't, hey, it's a lot easier to eat those chips and eat that ho-ho and, you know, have that go through the drive-through or whatever it is too. It's easier to like, hey, to, to cancel me going out to have lunch for my friend because I don't feel like going out, right? And, and being social for whatever reason too. But that's where discipline comes in because discipline is about compliance. And a lot of people relate to me being a soldier and being a military man is that, Hey, that we're all inherently disciplined. And that couldn't be further from the truth because to me, you know, I, I was always focused on influencing my soldiers by inspiring them through, through commitment first, right. Which starts with their why and, and understanding what their each individual motivational factor is. But then we had the compliance factor that was built in. But just because I, as an officer for a second, you know, and I told somebody to do something, it's technically a lawful order, right? You know, because I didn't walk around barking orders on every single day. That would make me a terrible leader, you know, um, because that made me focus more on compliance. Now, is that important in the battlefield when we don't need to sit here and talk about the, the why and the what and the how and all this stuff? Too? Yes, it is. And that's why the structure is what it is, 248 years old, right? Even for, you know, even older than that about compliance, that model, right? But, you know, modern humans, we are more commitment focused, but that nice combination of commitment and compliance is the secret sauce to help us then develop it too. But this is one of my favorite areas because I think goal pursuit is another thing that has a misnomer behind it. And so like understanding, having a process of helping people develop their roadmap for success and taking high and hard goals 
and then breaking them down into actionable steps and then incorporating how they think and what they do and other people. There's, there's a lot, I think what's cool about goal pursuit is that it incorporates all the rest of the mental and emotional and social skills that to bring it to bear through one process. Yeah. Discipline. I, I think discipline people just feel those who aren't disciplined, look at people who are disciplined and think, Oh, they just, they were born with that. That's an inherent trait. Yeah. And I, I can never, it's like any skill, any mental skill, you can yeah. become more optimistic. You can get more calm. You can become yeah. more disciplined. Um, yeah. but it does take tons and tons of effort. Like I don't yeah. want to get up every single morning and work out. Um, but I do because that's just, it's part of who I am now. I've been doing it since I was 13 years old and yeah. you know, 17 years later, that's just who I am. Uh, it didn't happen the first couple of years. Right. But it's like, whatever, you can relate it to anything. Um, yeah. And, and the same as, uh, like goal setting, there's, uh, there's a book that says, you know, you want to create habits that are too small to fail. And I, I think that's really quite important. Um, you know, yeah. because if you make them so sort of quote unquote, embarrassingly small, then your goal for your workout plan is to do one jumping jack. That's it. That's it. Okay. You nailed it. You did it. And now how can you do two next week? And then not, I'm going to work out seven days a week for 60 minutes each day. That's yeah. like, you're putting yourself in a position to make yourself feel like shit already. Yeah. And right. so that stuff is important to get, like, you've talked about it a lot today, like getting honest. You have to get honest. Like, where am I at? Right. Actually, like, where am right. I actually at? Not where I think I could be or where right. Jim is, who's also in the same class as me. Like, where do I sit? Like, I cannot right. beat reality. Reality wins every time. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's also yeah. important when it comes to anything in terms of and I, and I, you know, it's performance. It's a great point, Aaron, too. I want to pull on another myth that you see out there is this idea of 1% better. You know, that's James Clear's Atomic Habits. And again, I love that book. I don't agree with everything James Clear says. He's an author and, you know, hey, uh, and and so he's, he's not a psychologist, right? You know, so uh, very smart guy, very well researched, right? But he missed some things, right? I don't think James Clear intended us to believe that every coach in America was going to adopt this idea of 1% better. And then that becomes our expectation that we're going to get 1% better. It's like this linear progression upwards, right? Okay. And some mm -hmm. things that we do, the idea of getting 1% better, so like this, you know, weight loss or improving my strength or, you know, get developing a good sleep habit or nutrition habits. Those are just some examples. Maybe it's me going back to school to get my degree, you know, like when you, you think that you're going to, you're, if you think you're going to get 1% better every day, you're really setting yourself up for failure because progress is nonlinear, right? You know, and there's a great graphic that I like to show when I, you know, it's like, Hey, about what, when people are developing the mental game, what is, what is, what can they expect? Some days like you may get 10% better actually. Right. Some days you may get 30% worse, right? You know, um, some days you may get, you know, 0. 0.00001 better. And it doesn't even feel like you got better because you're like, man, I don't know, you know, uh, but I think that, you know, understanding the relationship between our expectation and what progress looks like is really, really important and making that perception of my future self, my aspirational self and the reality of where I'm at, bridging that gap as much as possible, you know, is, is really the key to success, right? And I, I think, you know, when I think when people start to get sideways is when they say, like you're, you're talking about, like very common thing with me is like, I used to think out, think that if I, if I wasn't like fully drenched in sweat and I didn't feel like I completely got my ass kicked that I didn't get a good workout in, you know, and now <laughs> as an older athlete, who's, you know, I call myself a tri-fat 
you know, sometimes there are days, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes there are days, you know, I'm a Clydesdale in every way on that, you know, but uh, you know, the, the hippos, I call myself, but there are days where, you know, just like last night is a great example. It's, it's been a long day, you know, it's my turn to cook dinner, uh, you know, and so, Hey, eight o'clock, you know, head out in the garage, you know? And so I just, and I just put on 30 for 30 to watch the third installment of Bill Walton's documentary. And it was 40, 50 minutes. I just rode on my concept two rower rode for 40 minutes. Didn't feel like doing it was, but Hey, you know, got in there. And before I know it, I got a good workout in, you know? And mm -hmm. so just by, and I, I, I talked to my son about this as well too, because he's training for his uh, first football season. He's going into seventh grade. I'm teaching him how to train. Right. And it's not about working out, it's about training because we're doing something for a purpose. Right. We were in the gym and, you know, we're taking the car ride over. It's just a mile away at our local gym. And he's kind of like, you know, he hung out with his cousin all day and he didn't he didn't feel like working out. Right. And so we had to sit down and get a talk to be able to get his mind right, to be able to talk about, hey, sometimes we just need to start. And let's think about how good you're going to feel when you just get this done. Right. OK, you don't have your A game today. Right. You don't feel like doing it, but we're going to do it anyways. And we're just going to stack wins. You know, those little micro wins are like, okay, let's get through the warm up. Now let's get through the first exercise. Let's get through the second one and the third one. Before you know it, you're not building momentum. And now when your mind was seemed to be really hard, it was actually easier because now I'm doing it. Right. And so mm -hmm. in our minds, we sometimes make things a lot harder and bigger than they actually are. So that, that, so again, bridging that perception and reality, that future self, the current self is as much an art as it is a science. Yeah, and I imagine that uh, that blends right with the next C, which is confidence. Yes, sir. Yeah, great. Uh, okay, so confidence uh, is really important, and I would argue a lot of people ask me, "Hey, what's the C that you you come across the most, uh, especially with youth athletes?" And this is this is it right here. I I actually believe, you know, if I was to extrapolate this, there's a confidence crisis that's going on right now in our country. It's the number one reason why people come to me um, because a lot of athletes struggle with their uh, inner Inner, their inner belief in themselves, which is what confidence is about. Uh, and they, they struggle with their ability, uh, their, their confidence in their abilities that they can actually do it. It has to do with their comp, their, their perception of their competency. Um, and then also beyond self has to do with interpersonal confidence, which is about building rapport and trust and not only uh, influencing confidence in others, but then actually having confidence be, uh, be influenced by other people as well too especially you know if you're on a team or your family or your tribe and community right because we're social creatures you know so it, it starts again then building off of that belief system so if we've done a really good job at the core element which we talked about the the center this isn't uh, actually part of the original model something i built in the character piece which i talked about earlier is the foundational piece you know where we talked about values beliefs and purpose as part of your identity now i and once i understand my belief system and what my beliefs are that help me and hurt me I can now then begin to really build the foundation of my confidence, right? Because that influences the lens in which I see myself and others. So I got to understand beliefs can help with help us and hurt us. It's like an iceberg effect. They call them positive ecology, we call them iceberg beliefs. So now when I start to turn those into affirmations that are the anchor into my belief and value system, they really identify who I am, like as a competitor, as an athlete, as a person, as a father, husband, friend, whatever. That's first and foremost. Now I start to be able to then use things like uh you know to my advantage you know to understanding to to use psychological momentum in my favor how i think how i talk to myself you know uh using the the four p's of self-talk right is it personal is it powerful is it purposeful you know is it pervasive right so mm. if i can use those things to my advantage 
understand what positive thinking looks like, understand what negative thinking looks like, there's neutral thinking looks like. And in any situation, I've got a toolkit of self-talk and affirmations that I could bring to bear to make those a habit. And the other, there's other things that go in there as well too that are more related to resilience, you know, having to do with, uh, for example, selective perception or the mental filter. So we talk about, you know, amnesia and how do I, whenever something happens to me that's good, bad, or indifferent, you know, how do I then take what I need, you know, get rid of what I don't and then take the next best steps, right? That's, that's this idea of selective perception. That's really uh, important as well too. And then the interpersonal confidence is really fascinating because they're really drawn um, a couple of different sources. One of them is Dr. Paul Zak at Claremont University. He talks about the neuroscience of trust, which I call as the, you know, the currency of high performing, you know, individuals and teams. And so understanding how oxytocin works, you know, and what is trustworthiness about? How do I train myself to trust myself, which comes from Dr. Bob Rotella, um, you know, and then how do I then, you know, so training, my training mindset is bringing skill in, the trusting mindset is letting skill out. Well, then how do I, you know, how do I, uh, how do I bridge the gap of trust and build rapport with other people, you know, that either on my family that I work with that are, you know, on my team and so on and so forth, right? And that really gets into another piece as well, too, which is communication. Communication is the vehicle in which the transaction of trust happens, right? So we think about, you know, uh, trust being, you know, this currency, how do we invest it in ourselves and how do we loan it to other people with terms? And the way we do that is through how we communicate. So that has to do with everything really starting with the Moravian model, which has to do with this idea that 55% of how we communicate to build trust has nothing to do with what we say is our body language, right? So how do we use mm -hmm. things like mirror and matching? How do I use my body language, you know, in terms of how I show up, you know, um, to be able to communicate with other people? And then, how, and, and then also determines how people see me. 38% has to do with the, the tone and tempo, with uh, how I say things, and only 7% has to do with what I actually say. I think once people understand that and are aware of that, they can then start to develop some strategies on how to then better influence other people um, towards optimal outcomes. And so there's nothing called active and constructive response. Um, this is where uh, another thing that I teach coaches, which is about uh, motivational interviewing, which is about, hey, how do you act? you know, how do you ask really good questions to meet an athlete where they're at and then plant the seed to where it becomes their idea and then where they're taking action with how they think and what they do versus you dictating it to them. So motivational interviewing is a big piece of that as well, too, that I, I bring into that. And since it's one of the tools that we bring to bear when it comes to confidence. What do you what do you think of the statement? Um, you may not always feel confident, but you can always behave confidently. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, I think that's different than the whole fake it till you make it thing, right? You know, because I, I don't believe, I don't believe in the fake it till you make it thing, right? Because I think it's disingenuine. It's a short term strategy. It's a short term tactic that isn't going to lead to a consistent optimal results, right? You know, but I, I do believe is that it can just kind of goes back to again, like, do I have my A game or a C game? So when I don't feel well, and I work with an athlete who is, uh, is not wasn't aware of how his body language starts to telegraph what type of day he's going to have right and so by shifting his awareness outside of himself to to other people he's seeing how his body language is reflecting what he's thinking and how he's feeling and ultimately how he performs so just by him understanding about like okay well if his body language is like dejected and his shoulders are slumped and his eyes are down and he's kind of got that resting dick face going on that I tend to have too when I'm concentrating, you know, it's, uh, 
what you're showing is that you're not building trust in others. Like, oh crap, here we go again. This is the bad Andy that's showing up today. You know, okay, this is what we're going to get. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But sometimes by you, you know, hey, okay, I don't, I don't feel great today too. But you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk tall. I'm gonna get big. Get my breathing up. I'm gonna smile. Right? Just by smiling and changing your body language, sometimes can help change your mood. Right? So there's, there's as much a physical and physiology, a behavioral thing that can help shift to your attitude and affect your emotions in a situation. So that I do believe in, you know, but if it's disingenuine to you, it's, it's not going to, it's not sustainable. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, yeah. I mean, as an athlete, like some days we just walk in, like we have our C game, but what protocols, like you're saying, can I actively make the choice to do? Okay. I can still have big body language. Yep. I can still show up and play hard and I can run and I can sprint and I can have energy like as much energy as I have in the tank. And, and there's yep. those active choices that you can make that help you then turn your feeling of little confidence into, okay, I, I, I got a C plus, like I can get to a B maybe. Okay. Yeah. This is awesome. I'm feeling it a little bit. Now momentum is moving yeah. and, and like, yeah, that's it. I don't, I don't like fake it till you make it either. Uh, so yeah. that's good. No, nah, you know, and I, I think that's what, and what people want is they, people love, cause it's interesting. We expect consistency and we want consistency, but it's like this, um, ever moving target, right? You know, it's so we're as humans, we're so inconsistent and unpredictable as well too. We're not robots, right? We're not artificial intelligence, right? So it's like, but you know, when people's people can expect regardless of, Hey, they're going to get the same guy like Jokic, right? You know? So it's like, Hey, when they, when they know what you're, they're going to get, you know, regardless of how you feel, that's, that's what helps build trust with people mm -hmm. and that's how you build confidence, right? Because you can sometimes surprise yourself. Like you said, you know, going back to my son the other day too, you know, I, I you know, we talked about getting his mind right. And we kind of went through a mindfulness practice ahead of time. And we, we had a quick conversation about how he feels. And then I said, Hey, well, let's, let's check it afterwards. And let's see, you know, right now he's like, Hey, I've got a, I got a D. Well, okay. Let's see what you give yourself when you're done. And he said, he, he went from a D to a B by the time we went home. Right. And so he completely surprised himself and even me by making that shift. Right. But all that started, it just, it was very incremental. It, it was just one thing at a time. Yeah, that's huge. Um, amazing. Last one of your four C's is uh, challenge. Yeah. Challenge. Yeah. Um, one of my, one of my favorites, cause I wrote a book, uh, helped co-author a book called deliberate discomfort. So this is about the art and science of getting comfortable, being uncomfortable. And, you know, this is what, first of all, uh, it has to do with risk orientation, right? You know, and so you think about like, you know, someone who is really high risk and doesn't take into account like safety and so on and so forth. So someone who like, like think about someone who works in the stock market. So I like, like, I like a risk of like, in terms of like going back to the investment thing too. So like, you know, Hey, are you going to go the, the, uh, the high risk, high yield, you know, the, you know, you got to risk it, no risk it, no biscuit mentality. These are the people who like to take chances and they throw caution to the wind so on and so forth. Right. And then you get a lot of hits and misses. Right. And sometimes you, you need to be able to be willing to take risks and do that cost bit of the analysis. Right. In terms of how you go about things like being an entrepreneur is really high risk, you know, uh, mm. because of the chance of failure. Right. Being a baseball player is a really high risk The thing is too, because it could really screw with you. So, you know, understanding, understanding like, you know, Hey, when do I need to go, you know, do the really high risk, high yield, you know, day trade stock investment. And when do I need to do the, the Roth IRA, you know, the, the go-to thing where it's going to steady Eddie 
so and so forth. It's not high risk. It's just, you know, so and so forth. Again, it's along a spectrum in terms of your risk orientation <clears throat> um, is it first and foremost. And the second thing is your willingness to stretch yourself, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, the best way that I heard this to use a metaphor is this, think about this idea that across the human spectrum, both mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, you're intentionally you know, getting out of your comfort zone by doing things you wouldn't normally do. Maybe it's a part of your daily routine. Maybe it's um, learning something new. Maybe it's making a new friend. Maybe, um, you know, uh, it's having an experience that I've never had before that may be uncomfortable. And what you're actually end up doing, you know, in every aspect of who you are, you're, you're walking yourself to the edge of yourself. You're, you're peering down into the abyss, you know, to where it should make you a little nervous and a little scared you know, before you do it, while you're doing it. Okay. And then, then, then you, what you do is then you walk back and you recover and then you, you then you walk yourself out to the edge of yourself again. And you're going to notice the edge of yourself it will extend. Right. Mm. Okay. But it takes you, the way that you grow is by shocking the system. Sometimes it's by extending the edges of yourself and every part of who you are as a human being, if you're willing to do that by doing hard things, you know, um, and everybody's version of hard is, is different by the way too. Right. So, Hey, someday I want to, you know, I, I, I've done, I never done a triathlon. I did a half Ironman, um, you know, uh, and so that was very daunting to me. I broke it down and did it, but like, Hey, I wasn't a swimmer. I wasn't a cyclist, you know, and I, I thought I was a runner. turns out I'm a way better cyclist than any one of those things through. But by doing that, I really became much, much better at all three, <clears throat> you know, because you're combining all those disciplines together too. So really specifically on the, the swimming thing was a great example. I'm way outside of my comfort zone on that one too. But just by me getting in the pool and working on the small things like my stroke, learning how to relax in the pool and so on and so forth, you know, I went from swimming 100 meters and being gas, and I thought I was a pretty good swimmer, um, to, you know, being able to, to swim well over a mile and like it's no sweat, you know. But I think that by me willing to – get in there and get out of my comfort zone, um, you know, is what allowed me to be able to grow as a human being and, and actually enjoy the experience. Whereas, you know, when I, I hated coming to go to the pool at first. Right. Um, and so the only reason I really enjoyed going it cause it was hot here in Texas and my kids could go swim in the pool, but eventually, you know, it started to, to loosen up and become something that I enjoy. I think Mike Tyson has a great, great quote, you know, is about, um, discipline going back to the whole thing is about when you, start to fall in love with the things that you, maybe you initially hated. You know, that's a great mm. example of that, how I stretched myself and I fell in love with something that I did not like. Yeah, the idea of just getting to the edge of your capacity uh, is such a powerful one, you know? And you mentioned also getting to the edge of your capacity and working hard to get there and taking a few risks, but also very important, is that you recover just as hard. And I mean, that's what you said. And I think that's such an important concept because we've been sort of indoctrinated into this culture of grind, 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 grind. And I believe in that sort of grind. I believe in the working hard and the effort you have to put into. But now people like you who are putting an emphasis on recovering just as hard my yep. sleep regimen, my eating regimen, yep. um, how do I recover my energy, my work, my love, like all of those things need yeah. to be integrated in harmony so that I can go out and, and try and be my best every day, whatever that looks like. That's also, you know, can be different. And sometimes, yep. you know, yeah, anyways, but 
that's that I think is, is is a very important point, the recovery piece that you mentioned. It is, yeah. And this is where the growth mindset comes in versus the fixed mindset. Understanding again that's something that's misunderstood is that we it's not one versus the other. We we both kind of like like we have positive negative thinking and in, in, in still it's part of our DNA. It's it's part of who we are as human beings, is we sometimes have a fixed mindset when we experience things. We sometimes have a growth mindset. But again, if I can shift my thinking to more of the growth mindset to where I learn from everything, right? You know, and to where I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid of results that may or may not be in my favor because I know that, you know, I can filter that out and take something from that that's going to make myself and other people better. That's what the growth mindset is about. It's not this idea that I'm, am I always going to learn from everything? No. That's why as human beings, we constantly make mistakes. You know, sometimes we make multiple mistakes before we actually finally learn. It's because we operate along that spectrum from the growth and the fixed mindset, depending on, you know, what our knowledge, skills, and experience is, right? Um, and so I think that's really important for us to understand, too. That's Carol Dweck's work, um, the book Mindset, which has become really popular. But understanding how we operate on that spectrum is equally as important. You're never going to get rid of the yeah. fixed mindset. You're going to be fixed on some things. You're right, tendency to be fixed on some things. And you've got to be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. Well um thank you andy you're uh you're a legend i uh love the connection i appreciate everything you do and put out into the world um like uh it's no small thing for what you've done and what you continue to do so thank you yeah thank you aaron and uh you know i just want to give a shout out to to you and love your story uh, i love your mission which i think has become a ministry of sorts right and uh you're trying to bring this idea of mental health wellness and fitness in, into the world through this forum. Um, I know podcasting, I have started starting a new podcast called School Sessions, which be on the lookout for is not easy, uh, but you're, you're a great host. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, you know, and if I can, you know, can I give a, you know, can I let the audience know how to get a hold of me? Absolutely. Yeah. And everything you say will be linked in the show notes. Perfect. Yeah. So the best way to be able to follow me is uh, my Kung Fu is probably the strongest on LinkedIn. If you're on there, as well, too, you know, if you're a millennial, you're probably not on LinkedIn because you think it's for old people. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, I have a YouTube channel and uh, I'm also on Instagram. But my Kung Fu is probably the strongest on LinkedIn and Instagram. You can follow me there as well, too. My company is called Design and Perform. And so you can follow me at, at Coach Reese. Uh, it's R-I-I-S-E. You can also follow, follow my company, Design to Perform, um, and, and reach out to me. And uh, I, love, I love the engagement. I love to be able to, again, democratize mental skills training because everyone deserves to to be at their best when it matters the most and become the best version of themselves. So the best way to do that's with how you think from the inside out. Fantastic. Absolutely love it. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Aaron. See you in the arena. Thank you for tuning in to that episode with Coach Andy Reese. There are four C's of mental toughness. Which one will you start to focus on today to improve your overall mental well-being? And if you enjoyed that episode, please share it with a friend because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Good Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is through Patreon. Patreon.com slash Aaron Mashbits directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit, You Are Loved. But 
Most importantly, most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.